Welcome to Charming Dharma, a podcast about living Buddhism in your everyday life. I'm your host, Sarah Bird, and this show is dedicated to giving you the clarity and courage to live intentionally. Welcome to today's show of Charming Dharma. Thank you for tuning in. I'm here in the Lush studio at the University of Leicester campus. And we have a great show today. I have an interview coming up a little later on with a Sikh student named Hardeep Singh. Um, It's going to be great fun. But for now, I'm going to start off with um, a little bit from a woman named Pima Chodron. So uh, Sunday was Mother's Day. Apparently, it was not Mother's Day in the United States. Uh, my family's back in the U.S., and I saw all of the Mother's Day cards here at the uh, the grocery stores and whatnot and just assumed, without thinking about it, that it was also Mother's Day in the United States. So I sent my mom a Mother's Day card, sent her a present, called her up on Sunday, and wished her a happy Mother's Day, and she was confused and I was confused, but we finally figured it out. So apparently Mother's Day in the U.S. is not until May, but for all of you uh, European mothers out there, happy Mother's Day. Uh, Hope you called your mom over the weekend. Also yesterday was International Women's Day, so I wanted to start with a female... um, This woman, her name is Pima Chodron. She's a Buddhist monk who lives in Canada, and she is actually trained in the same lineage of Buddhism that I'm trained in, which is called Shambhala. It's a Tibetan Buddhism. And um, yeah, her granddaughter went to my undergraduate university and uh, the same school I did, which was founded by the lineage holder that she and I are both trained in. His name is Chogyam Trungpa. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, he founded my university, and she actually was the keynote speaker at the graduation, I think, in 2013, so that was pretty cool. Um, So I wanted to start with an article that she wrote um, that I thought would be a good way to highlight a uh, female Buddhist monk. She's pretty famous. She um, has written a few books that have been pretty popular. One is called The Wisdom of No Escape. Another is called The Places That Scare You. Um, She's written numerous books, but those are kind of her two most popular ones. So they're really good. I've read them and I highly suggest them. Okay, so I kind of want to just read this article. I'm just going to stop. It's called To Know Know Yourself is to Forget Yourself. So here we go. Written by Pima Chodron. According to Pima Chodron, we might think that knowing ourselves is a very ego-centered thing. But by beginning to look clearly and honestly at ourselves, we begin to dissolve the walls that separate us from others. The journey of awakening happens just at the place where we can't get comfortable. Opening to discomfort is the basis of transmuting our so-called negative feelings. We somehow want to get rid of our uncomfortable feelings, either by justifying them or by squelching them, But it turns out that this is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. According to the teachings of Buddhism, our wisdom and our confusion are so interwoven that it doesn't work to just throw things out. By trying to get rid of negativity, by trying to eradicate it, by putting it into a column labeled bad, 
we are throwing away our wisdom as well, because everything in us is creative energy, particularly our strong emotions. They are filled with life force. There's nothing wrong with negativity per se. The problem is that we never see it. We never honor it. We never look into its heart. We don't taste our negativity, smell it, get to know it. Instead, we're always trying to get rid of it by punching someone in the face, by slandering someone, by punishing ourselves, or by repressing our feelings. In between repression and acting out, however, there is something wise and profound and timeless. If we just try to get rid of negative feelings, we don't realize that those feelings are our wisdom. The transmutation comes from the willingness to hold our seat with the feeling, to let the words go, to let the justification go. We don't have to have resolution. We can live with the dissonant note. We don't have to play the next key to end the tune. Curiously enough, this journey of transmutation is one of tremendous joy. We usually seek joy in the wrong places by trying to avoid feeling whole parts of the human condition. We seek happiness by believing that whole parts of what it is to be human are unacceptable. We feel that something has to change in ourselves. However, unconditional joy comes about through some kind of intelligence in which we allow ourselves to see clearly what we do with great honesty, combined with a tremendous kindness and gentleness. This combination of honesty, or clear seeing, and kindness is the essence of Maitri, which means unconditional friendship with ourselves. This is a process of continually stepping into unknown territory. You become willing to step into the unknown territory of your own being. Then you realize that this particular adventure is not only taking you into your own being, it's also taking you out into the whole universe. You can go into the unknown when you have made friends with yourself. You can only step into those areas out there by beginning to explore and have curiosity about this unknown in here in yourself. Dogen Zinji said, to know yourself is to forget yourself. We might think that knowing ourselves is a very ego-centered thing, but by beginning to look so clearly and so honestly at ourselves, at our emotions, at our thoughts, at who we really are, we begin to dissolve the walls that separate us from others. Somehow all of these walls, these ways of feeling separate from everything else and everyone else, are made up of opinions. They are made up of dogma. They are made up of prejudice. These walls come from our fear of knowing parts of ourselves. There's a Tibetan teaching that is often translated as, Self-cherishing is the root of all suffering. It can be hard for a Western person to hear the term self-cherishing without misunderstanding what is being said. I would guess that about 85% of us Westerners would interpret it as telling us that we shouldn't care for ourselves, that there is something anti-wakeful about respecting ourselves. But that isn't what it really means. What it is talking about is fixating, Self-cherishing refers to how we try to protect ourselves by fixating, how we put up walls so that we won't have to feel discomfort or lack of resolution. 
That notion of self-cherishing refers to the erroneous belief that there could be only comfort and no discomfort, or the belief that there could be only happiness and no sadness, or the belief that there could be just good and no bad. But what the Buddhist teachings point out is that we could take a much bigger perspective, one that is beyond good and evil. Classifications of good and bad come from lack of maitri, or loving-kindness. We say that something is good if it makes us feel secure, and it's bad if it makes us feel insecure. That way, we get into hating people who make us feel insecure and hating all kinds of religions or nationalities that make us feel insecure. And we like those who give us ground under our feet. When we are so involved with trying to protect ourselves, we are unable to see the pain in another person's face. Self-cherishing is ego-fixating and grasping. It ties our hearts, our shoulders, our head, our stomach into knots. We can't open. Everything is in a knot. When we begin to open, we can see others and we can be there for them. But to the degree that we haven't worked with our own fear, we're going to shut down when others trigger our fear. So to know yourself is to forget yourself. This is to say that when we make friends with ourselves, we no longer have to be self-involved. It is a curious twist. Making friends with ourselves is a way of not being so self-involved anymore. Then Dogen Zenji goes on to say, to forget yourself is to become enlightened by all things. When we're not so self-involved, we begin to realize that the world is speaking to us all the time. Every plant, every tree, every animal, every person, every car, every airplane is speaking to us, teaching us, awakening us. It's a wonderful world, but we often miss it. It's as if we see the previews of coming attractions and never get to the main feature. When we feel resentful or judgmental, it hurts us and it hurts others. But if we look into it, we might see that behind the resentment, there is fear. And behind their fear, there is tremendous softness. There is a very big heart and a huge mind, a very awake, basic state of being. To experience this, we begin to make a journey, the journey of unconditional friendliness towards the self that we already are. So that ends the... Um, the short article by Pima Chodron, I think it's a wonderful article talking about uh, making friends with yourself and uh, moving beyond the fear, finding the wisdom within it. So hopefully you got something out of that. Again, she's a uh, female Buddhist nun um, who lives in Canada and is trained in the Shambhala lineage and has written a few books and is generally just a wonderful woman who's definitely influenced my Buddhist practice myself throughout the years. Um, so I'm going to take a break here. We're going to have a couple tunes and then we'll be back with an interview with Hardeep Singh, a Sikh student. Um, so stay tuned. Yeah. 
soft skin and you jumped in with your eyes closed and a smile upon your face. Você vem, você cai, você vem e cai. Vem aqui pra cá porque eu quero te beijar na sua boca. Que coisa louca. Vem aqui pra cá, eu quero te beijar na sua boca. Oh, que boca gostosa.
carry your cup in your hand And look around, he's a brown now And the sky is a hazy shade of winter
right, you just heard a tune from J.J. Kale called Call Me the Breeze. Before that was uh, Simon and Garfunkel with Hazy Shade of Winter. And the first song in that three-song set was called um, Underwater Love by Smoke City. We heard earlier a, an article by Pima Chodron, a uh, female Buddhist nun in Canada, um, and that article was published in Lion's Roar, which is a Buddhist magazine. It's a great one. There's quite a few out there, oddly enough, um, but that one's a really reputable magazine called Lion's Roar, so check it out if you get a chance. Um, up next, I have an interview with Hardeep Singh. He is a Sikh student, um, and we're just going to jump right into that. Welcome back to Charming Dharma. My name is Sarah Bird, and in the studio with me today, I have a DMU student named Hardeep Singh. Hi, Hardeep. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, great. Um, so Hardeep is a second-year biomedical student over at DMU. He's part of the DMU Sikh Society, um, and they are kind of joint societies with the Sikh Society here on our University of Leicester campus. I actually met you at a joint DMU University of Leicester mm -hmm. Sikh Society event. Yeah. It was Sikhi week, right? Or yeah. Sikh week? Um, mm -hmm. A couple weeks ago and uh, we met at one of the events there and we're talking about mm -hmm. kind of the relationship between Buddhism and Sikhism or as it's um, better known as Sikhi. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were just kind of discussing the different aspects of the religion and I wanted to have kind of a conversation similar to that for our listeners today. So I wanted to start um, with kind of the foundation of both of the religions. I can speak um, about Buddhism a little bit more, and you can speak, obviously, about Sikhism more than I can. Um, and so, yeah, we'll just get started with that. So Buddhism started in um, about the year 500 BCE, before Common Era, and it was um, founded by um, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama was his uh, like human name. The Buddha is just a title. But he was born around that time in Nepal, which is in northeastern uh, India, or northeast of India, um, kind of close to Tibet, if you're not familiar. And the basis of it was kind of rejecting the extremes, um, rejecting both the life of luxury and materialism and excess and indulgence, and also rejecting the extreme of depravity and, um, you know, becoming an ascetic who barely eats and is deprived of nutrition and food and, you know, worldly pleasures and things like that. And really was founded out of this idea of the middle way. So rejecting the extremes um, and being balanced as a way of life. And uh, the history or the story of the Buddha is pretty interesting. So if you're ever interested, I encourage you to look that up because it's a fun little mythology story. Um, some of it true and some of it, I would suspect, based in myth. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit about the Sikhi Foundation. Um, well, Sikhi was founded by Afas Guru, Guru Nanak Deji. They were born in uh, Lahore, which is now Pakistan. Um, this is uh, around about 1469. <laughs> they, they had 11, um, 10 successes, the last guru being um, the Guru Granth Sahib, which um, is the Holy Scriptures. The basic, or at the time in Punjab, it was a very turbulent time. Um, there was a lot of conflict between Islam and Hinduism. Mm -hmm, yeah. So um, there there was a lot of um, unequality, unequality, 
inequality. Inequality, yeah. sorry. Yeah, because yeah, Hinduism had, like, the caste system, as, mm. you know, still in place at the time, so there was a lot of different, like, levels of yeah. hierarchy of society. Yeah, and also they had um, a belief that you'd have to go through a pundit to meet God, mm-hmm, yeah. to, to communicate with God, and... Um, Whereas the Mughals, they they were oppressing the Hindus in general, saying that you you know they had a uh, certain taxes. So if you weren't following you know Islam, you had certain taxes. Um, so Sikhi was kind of, I w- you could say the middle way. It was saying there was no there's no caste. You could believe what you want. Um, there's equality within women and you know men. Um, yeah, which was huge at the yeah. time. I mean, this is 15th, 16th century, mm-hmm. like that. Equality between the genders was not really no. <laughs> the norm. Yeah. Like it was, it was quite common for women to kill themselves after the, the husband had passed away. Yeah, it was like a tradition. So stuff like that was um, it was a, you you can say abolished um, by Granonic, but um, it, it still carried on in some places. But it was the main main um, kind of uh, teachings of Granonic theology: equality, um, love, compassion, and um, just um, one God as well, because um. At the time, obviously, Hinduism, they have many different demigods. Um, Sikhism, is obviously, is, um, is its own religion. It's not part of Islam. It's not a sect of Islam or Hinduism. It, they, they have the, we believe in one God. And um, it's also quite open, as in, like, we don't believe that our God is the only God. It's um, Allah is also God. And God is also God, as in, you know, Christians call God. Yeah. God. yeah um, you could call Ram God, Krishna God. We just believe God. If you believe in one God, you can call him whatever you want. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and that kind of that kind of differs a little bit. This is one area um, where Sikhism or Sikhi and Buddhism are different in that Buddhism, um, while Hinduism is polytheistic and Islam and Sikhism and Christianity and any of the Abrahamic traditions as well are all monotheistic, meaning there's one God. Uh, Buddhism really is an atheistic religion. We don't have a God. Um, a lot of people confuse our uh the Buddha as our God as though we like worship Buddha um, as a God or deity but we don't he was a man a human um, that did not have divine qualities of any sort Uh, and so yeah that but that's you know that's kind of what I like about Buddhism is like you can be a believer in God and you can still practice Buddhism so like when I was first introduced to Buddhism I wasn't raised Buddhist I was raised Christian and when I was first introduced to Buddhism I practiced both religions I still believed in God I still had my Christian you know whatever practices but I also was able to study Buddhism and the teachings and the meditative lifestyle and all of that um, and still have a belief in God because there was no conflict between like any God between the religions but likewise, I um, over the years I've been studying Buddhism for a while now, and um, over the years I've since um, kind of I no longer have a belief in God. I've since become atheistic, um, and I can still practice Buddhism. Like there's no requirement for a belief in God. You know what I mean? It has that flexibility. But similarly, like I hear in Sikhi that there's kind of that flexibility as well. Like there is one God and you believe in God and it doesn't matter if you call God Allah or God or Krishna or like whatever. Like that's, it's just this idea of a oneness, yeah. a divine oneness. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, Gurnanic or our ethos or ethos is um, you, we're not meant to convert. We believe if you're going to be Muslim, be be a proper Muslim. If you're going to be Hindu, be a proper Muslim. But at the end of the day, be a good human being. Yeah. 
It's not. Um, you mean be a, if you're a Hindu, be a proper Hindu. Yeah, be a, be a proper yeah, okay. Hindu. As in like, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You said if you're a Hindu, be a proper Muslim. And I was like, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm what sorry. are you guys teaching? <laughs> Just yeah. like yeah. No, I got it. I got preaching it. the wrong religion. Yeah. yeah. No, if, if you're going to be a Muslim, be a proper Muslim. If you're going to be a Hindu, be a proper Hindu. Just at the end of the day, be a be a good human being. Yeah. Um, you know the the basics of you know killing is wrong. Doesn't matter if you're Hindu, Muslim, um, Sikh. Christian atheist non-believer yeah, yeah it doesn't matter even if you don't believe in God you, you don't kill you don't steal you don't lie yeah just the basics of that if if you believe God is Ram it's fine if yeah. you believe God is Allah this is fine it's, as long as you you're practicing it and um, you know you've, you've got love compassion for you know humanity it, there's, there's no there's no wrong <laughs> Yeah, I really like that. So I want to touch a little bit on the um, like equality bit because mm. we did talk a little bit about the leadership. So in Buddhism, we don't really have clergy. We do have um, monks and um, people who are, you could say, enlightened, have attained Buddhahood and or attained awakening and are lineage holders of certain lineages of Buddhism or within Buddhism. But all people have the capacity to be enlightened. All people have the capacity to be awakened. You don't need this med like this intermediate person that you have to go through in order to become awakened. Um, certainly proper teachers help um, and proper leaders and guides are help helpful in your path. But you, it's not a requirement. It's not like a requisite to to attain awakening and uh is it kind of a similar thing yeah, in seeking definitely it's, it's very similar we don't we don't believe you need uh an intimate either we have we have gyanis which we people who are kind of enlightened they, mm. they have knowledge which you, you can go to learn um but otherwise we believe your relationship with god or um spirituality is very personal yeah so um in, instead you, you instead of looking outside you look inside mm, so, i like that yeah. so instead of asking other people you sometimes you have to ask yourself yeah, I like that. And that's really true for um, Buddhists as well. Like we have this thing, um, this quote that's attributed to the Buddha that says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along the lines of, you know, any of these teachings that I've taught, if they are not right for you, if you don't believe them within yourself, then toss them out. Like mm. it doesn't matter. You don't have to believe what I say. It's, it's what's right for you. Mm. It's that internal knowing, that internal wisdom. Yeah. So kind of a similar thing. Um, and along those lines, like, because there isn't this hierarchy of people, there isn't this, um, you know, stepping stone or these levels of who's closer to God or who's closer to enlightenment, there is a sense of equality that all people, well, at least in Buddhism, all people um, are, are equally capable of attaining awakening, equally capable of attaining enlightenment. Um, and because of that, there is just kind of this inherent equality. Um, and also in Buddhism, we have this teaching that there is basic goodness within each person, that inherently as people, we're basically good. We're, we, don't, we don't teach like kind of an original sin type of thing. We don't really have that, that inherently all people are good. And in fact, we're inherently awakened. Like our nature as human beings, at least in Buddhism, is that we already are awakened and that if we can get back to our authentic self and, you know, drop away all of the other, like, I guess things that we've learned that have taken us away from ourselves or our true enlightenment, that we can get back to that naturally. So is there kind of a, uh, what, what does Sikhism talk about that? Like equality and... Um, Equality-wise, um I believe um, we, we believe no matter what caste, creed, race, 
gender, everyone's born equal and spiritual obviously spiritual we believe in karma as well, so spiritually certain people will be born um, you know, with higher with different karma. Mm-hmm. So um some people say say if I was closer to reaching enlightenment this in this you know form mm-hmm. next in, in our next life maybe and obviously I'd, I'd, be, I'd still be at that same level even though I'm you know a different life form I'm still the same soul yeah so I'm, I'm still at a certain level however we, we don't we don't believe that you have to go to certain people or there's a certain caste or a certain creed or a certain gender that that are naturally closer to, to God we believe you know women can easily contain enlightenment you know mukti what we believe what we call mukti mm-hmm. um, and mukti is like oneness with God yeah oneness or, yeah. with God so it's, it's not just going to heaven, it's becoming, merging your soul into, into that one higher power. That's beautiful. Mm. I love that. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so um, there was kind of, I wanted to touch a little bit on the path or the lifestyle or the way of life that a good Buddhist would live, or I say good Buddhist, that's definitely like a judgment call, but um, you know what I mean? Like if someone was a Buddhist and trying to attain, like, you know, living that lifestyle, and this kind of um, entails a few different things. There is this thing called the Eightfold Path, which is one of the one of the four um, four noble truths. It's this path to a freedom from suffering, a freedom from um, well, a freedom to become enlightened, a freedom to become awakened. And the Eightfold Path, just quickly, is right having right understanding, right thought right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So those are kind of the eight aspects of it, and they all have their own like extensive description that you can look up. But it's kind of summed up in these three different parts of life. And one is having an ethical path, you know, making sure that your ethics are, are in alignment with what you believe and all of that. And then having mental discipline. So not discipline in the sense of punishment or being punitive, but discipline in the sense of like um, being consistent, making sure you're working towards something, not being lazy about it. And then the third kind of aspect of life is wisdom. So we meditate, we practice mindfulness, we live a contemplative lifestyle. Again, contemplative comes from the word to contemplate. So kind of bringing an awareness to all aspects of life. And that kind of really brings up this like inherent respect for all living things, inherent respect for life and others. And a big part of that is living a compassionate life, having cultivating loving kindness purposefully in your life. Um, being present and compassionate with other people, really, really fully being there with everything that you do, your work life, your home life. So Buddhism is um, seen more as like a way of life and less of a religious practice or a religious devotion. It's more of just like a positive lifestyle that focuses on these three things, eth- ethical path, mental discipline, and wisdom. So can you talk a little bit about um, like the Sikhi lifestyle or the the life, the way of the path or whatever for Sikhism? Well, to be a Sikh means you're a student. It means to learn. Mm, I um, like that. So in general, you're, you're always learning. That's the the biggest foundation or the figure, the biggest, um, the biggest, the main ethic of being a Sikh is to to forever. You never stop learning. To forever learn. I love that. Mm, I love that. That's that's to develop spiritually. You always have to learn. It doesn't matter where you get. Does it like even even it's on, on, until you obtain become one with God until you don't become one with God you're always going to be learning it doesn't matter where you are and you could everyone can learn different like everyone can learn different things we also believe that as well so say 
I personally believe my my biggest like to be a Sikh to, for me to be to be a Sikh the biggest thing is to have compassion. Mm. But somebody else could could say it's to be to be disciplined. Somebody else could say you know um, it's to have love for everyone. But someone could say that's everything's you know that's every everything it's all the same. And you know I feel like that's true for every religion. Like mm. even when I was a Christian, like that means different things for different people. Mm. You know how you express your faith how you express your religious practice can Definitely. come out in different ways like the way i was i was explained is like um, imagine you're in a dark room and somebody's laying on laying on the table and somebody comes in from one side and i come from the upside opposite side and i grab over the feet uh-huh. and i'm explaining look this is what god's like this is what Sikh, well, this is what Sikh is like yeah and the other person from the other side so he's grabbed the head and he's like no <laughs> i feel like an eye and like yeah, a nose. Yeah. i'm like no I'm, i feel like two toes it'd be stupid for us to argue because we're we're holding the same thing it's just that we're on two different sides of the have you heard of that story? It's an old folk tale. Um, maybe you've heard of it, but it, I think it's old Indian uh, folklore. Is the um, the, f- the five blind men and the elephant? <laughs> well, it's kind of a similar concept. It's really fun. So these five blind men go up to an elephant, and one grabs the trunk, one grabs the legs, one grabs the body, one grabs the ears, one grabs the tail, <laughs> and they're all arguing. No, it feels like you know the elephant looks like this. The one holding the trunk is like describing a trunk, and the one holding the ears is like no it's big and wide and you know it like goes on and on it's an old story yeah um and yeah it's the same exact thing yeah. like they're they're all describing different aspects of the same one elephant Definitely. and um the thing i really like about what you described is like this process of learning like you're always learning mm-hmm. there's an old zen saying you can't add to a full cup mm-hmm. if your cup is full there's you have no room to add to it mm-hmm. so if you think that you know everything if you believe that you're done learning that you have this ultimate wisdom then you have no room to learn anymore like it's not I, I love that kind of um, almost that like curiosity that openness and willingness to like learn more explore more um, take in more it's I don't know maybe as an American where we have so much like political strive mm-hmm. and so many tensions and culture like for people to just stop and and accept that other people may have different experiences mm-hmm. than you and like to validate them to say like yeah I don't experience that but I see that you do and that's mm-hmm. okay like just because you're right doesn't mean I'm wrong yeah, you know like definitely. that I think that's such a if you can really embody that um, then that's a really powerful mm. thing. And so, I think within uh, Japji Sabha, one of our first prayers, there's um, uh, Maharaj says, "Dal Dharam Daya Kaput." So Dharam uh-huh. is the son of Daya. Daya means compassion. Oh, nice. So without Daya, there will be no Dharam. There'll be no. There'll be no. Um, well, Dharam is a, is a complex thing to explain. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could say it's religion, but it's it's really not. So, like, without <laughs> compassion, there wouldn't be. Any sort of spirituality. Spirituality, I guess. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what, I studied Sanskrit when I was an <laughs> undergrad, and there's so many words I'm like, it just doesn't translate. Yeah, you just don't come out. I got nothing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so the last thing, or I guess the last thing, another thing that I have listed um, is kind of this idea that we hear in a lot of religions, uh, mm-hmm. specifically the Abrahamic religions, which consists of um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Or more specifically, I suppose, in Christianity is is what I should more accurately say. Um, and that's this idea of, like, liberation or mm-hmm. salvation. Not liberation, but salvation. So, like, in Christianity, there's this belief um, of being saved. Like, mm-hmm. your, your soul needs to be saved by Jesus. Um, which, if you look back at some of the writings and teachings of that, can have a really... There can be a really beautiful message that comes out of that. 
Um, but in Buddhism, it's kind of different. There's not this saving that's external, kind of like what we talked about earlier. Like there's no one, there's no external person that's saving you. It's a matter of internal awakening, mm-hmm. this internal enlightenment. And in Buddhism, um, some of the listeners may be familiar, but this may be new to some people. There's this idea of the cycle of suffering. So last week on the show, I talked about suffering as one of the four noble truths in Buddhism and that it's kind of this um, kind of like admitting the reality that all people suffer in one form or another. It's just part of the human experience. It's just part of being alive as a human. But the beauty comes when we talk about freedom from suffering and the liberation from suffering. So the idea in Buddhism is uh, many Buddhists believe, but again, there's, you know, lots of people who don't believe this, but many Buddhists believe in reincarnation, which is being reborn. Your soul is being reborn into a physical life more than once. And that you're on this cycle, on this repeat cycle um, of suffering every time that you're born, but there is the possibility to be freed from that. And once you've liberated yourself from that suffering, once you've freed yourself from that cycle of rebirth, then it's, uh, it's how it's, it's the result of attaining awakening, attaining this freedom from suffering. Um, but we do kind of have this one, this one belief, um, that I think is kind of cool. And it's the idea of the Bodhisattva. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or if any of the listeners have, but it's a specifically a Buddhist thing. And it's this idea that there are some beings out there, some souls, some people who even once attaining enlightenment and being freed from the cycle of rebirth are still choose to come back to being reborn in order to help others reach enlightenment as well in order to help others it's a it's an act of compassion and it's not that they're saving others but it's um you know being there to help show them wisdom or help them on their path or help them attain it themselves and it's really cool it's called the bodhisattva um and i uh yeah i just think it's really cool you can take the bodhisattva vow it's um like a vow that you take and you can take it before you become a bodhisattva like before you're enlightened you can take it whenever you want and it's basically just this idea of may all beings be be happy may all may i be of benefit to all beings everywhere um so i think that's kind of a beautiful thing that's probably the closest we have to this idea of like salvation it's not really the same it's definitely more an internal thing but it is based in compassion and like love for others a selflessness so is there anything like what's the kind of the idea of freedom or ending like the cycle of suffering is that something that you'll have in Siki? yep um we we believe in mukti so mukti means um kind of translate to become free Become free, free. From, oh yeah, free from the cycle, but um, and you merge, you, well, your soul merges into God, so it, you can get really deep. It depends what your concept of God is. Some people could say God's love. So when you become emerged into love, you become one into love. Mm-hmm. And God could be an energy. So when you become one with that one energy, God could be. It, dep- it depends on your understanding of mm-hmm. God, and God's obviously infinite. So you could say you know, <laughs> infinite different ways yeah, of yeah merging with God. <laughs> yeah, so um, we we believe when you know. It's, it, merging into God and we also believe that you have to do that while you're alive you can't it's not like you get ju- you do get judged off but it's not like you'll um you'll, you, sh- you merge into God while you're alive mm. it's not it's not like you'll um, merge into God after so while you're living you, you become you that's become interesting I did not know that so it's more like an active living mm. expression of God yeah. rather than this afterlife belief it's called Jeevan Mukut Jeevan means you know Jeev means your life 
Mm-hmm. You're like uh, living and mukat means free. You're, you're free. But you're living, but you're, you're free. You're liberated. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I really like that. Um, yeah, we definitely have that in Buddhism as well. Like uh, you don't have to. It's not an awakening and liberation from suffering is not an afterlife mm. thing, which differs from most religions in the world that I know of, at least that so much of um, like so much of the behavioral rules in a lot of religions comes from this mm. consequence of what, what yeah. happens after death. It's mm. this post-mortem, post-life thing. And, uh, you know, I think that can have a lot of implications on how you live your life now mm. of, of what you believe if you believe you can reach oneness with God or mm. a, attain enlightenment in this life, like right now, and you can live it, or if you believe that you have to wait until after you die, like mm. there, it's just, it's very different. But the way we believe you become one with God is like how you said, you know, some people believe that you'll get punished. If you're doing, if you're being good just because you fear being punished, mm. that that's that's not wrong. You won't, you won't achieve mukti. It's not the right intention. Mm. We believe mm. there's three types of karam. So what, karam is karma, so. Uh, karma, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, one would be sat. Sat karma means um, true. So say if I, I don't know, I'll give you food. Mm-hmm. But I have the intention, look, I've done something good. I'm going to get something good in my karma. I've done good karma. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's, it's, you've done good. Then there's one's bad, obviously. I'll take something off you. And, you know, I'm eventually down the line, I'm going to have to, you know. Pay re- for that. Pay for that, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Reap the repercussions. Then we believe in nishkam. We don't, we, we, sh- we don't believe you should do sat, bad, or you know, we we don't believe you should do it either. Then we don't believe you know satkaram won't leave to um, mukti. Why? Because I've given you something good. Eventually, you're gonna have to give me something good back. Uh, I've got yeah. that that thought. Like I'm gonna get something good. Like you owe me. Yeah. Even if it's not that person, like oh, I'm doing this to get good karma. That means mm. you're expecting being paid back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we believe you should have nishkam. Nishkam means with no no attachment. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm giving something to you without the thought of anything, you know, I'm getting anything back without the thought of pleasing anyone yeah. or punishment. Yeah. Th- that's, that's how you achieve, achieve you know, true happiness. You know, and, you know I like that because it is like, it's this freedom of it. You know, if you're, if you're giving with the intent of receiving, whether it be good or bad, um, you know, that's the, str- like when you give something with strings attached, mm. that strings attached on both yeah, ends. Yeah. You know, that means you're attached to mm. something as well. You're bound to that kind mm. of engaged, like that engagement with that other person, that interaction, whether it's now or distant future, like whatever, you're still bound to that. But mm. if you give without the intention of receiving something back, if you give from that, like no strings attached place, then that is true freedom. Mm. You're not bound to that. Definitely. You know, you just do it out of your own desire to do that not mm. to get something back yeah, it could lead to a lot of suffering as well if you, if you expect something back because how about you, you have a few like uh, i'll give you an apple and i'll she'll eventually give me an apple back or something yeah. like that and i don't get that i'll feel hurt yeah exactly you expect that and then you're let down if you don't <laughs> get it or oh they didn't give me an apple she gave me an orange yeah. and that wasn't fair <laughs> like oh it sets up so many things even meditating and praying because you know we we, we um we pray and meditate but if you have that intention i'm gonna get this i'm, I'm gonna get i'm gonna get to mukti i'm gonna get to this yeah, it's not. You're not. You're gonna. You have them strings attached. Yeah, you have conditions. It's like um, when your mom, when your mother loves you, she has no conditions. Yeah, you, you, that's what your love should be like. Unconditional. Unconditional. Yeah, and you know, I see that a lot, even in like the yoga community or the Buddhist community. It is. It is easy to get caught in that of like. I mean, I'm even guilty of this, of like, oh, I'm going to sit and meditate so that I'm a good Buddhist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sit and meditate because then I look like I'm spiritual. Mm. I'm going to do some yoga out on the lawn, you know, at the front of the university because then other people will see me doing that. Mm. Like, it's just this, it, it's just this like ego, 
it can even be driving your ego. Like Definitely. even if you don't get something out of it from a different person, mm. you could still be like attached to it on it building your own identity. Definitely. So yeah, mm. I really like that. I said this to you before the show, actually. I've never met a Sikh that I didn't like. And that is a true and genuine statement. Like, every Sikh I've ever met has been really amazing and mm. kind and genuine. Like, mm. genuinely open-hearted. And it's it's great to see that from a community, like, as a whole. Like, it's awesome to meet people, like, one person at a time who's mm. like that. But then to see, like, when I've gone to Sikh events, it's like everyone there is acting like that. Okay, so... Um, yeah, was there anything else that you wanted to add to that about Sikhism? Um, well, we do have um, five takats, which are um, the five main thrones. One of them being... Main thrones? Yeah, the thrones. Takat being thrones. So um, there's a Akar takat. Um, so wait, when you say throne, I think of like someone sitting on a big chair. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. what do you mean? Is it like a spiritual throne? Yeah, or? Sp- yeah oh, you okay. can say spiritual throne. Are these like, le- is this like a leadership position or...? Um, well, you could say that. It's, well, basically after... Um, when Guru Granth Sahib was given Guru Gaddi, so they, they made Guru. The, uh-huh. um, the founder. Yeah, the yeah. Founder. And um, then the Sikh Pant, all these, as, as a, like a congregation came together and said, we'll make these five thrones. So if anybody had any questions, any pro- problems, or they can uh-huh. govern over the Sikh uh, nation. Yeah, okay. And they gave, him, gave it to, that. yeah, to the Akal Takat, which is, um, Akal means mortal. Takat means thrones, so it's a mortal throne. Um, oh, mortal throne, okay, got it. Throne. And uh, there's no one sitting on these thrones. They're, yeah. They're just, um, the only person sitting on is our guru. Yeah. So um, the mortal throne, then there's Anand Prasab, which was a four. Um, then there's Damdama Sab, um, there's Hajur Sab, and there's Patma Sab. And the Akal Takat, which was the main one, today has lost a bit of its glory because of obviously political reasons. But it just govern, governs over the political side. And also if there's any like major Sikh problems of the nation, mm. they come together and um, everyone comes together. It's not like a certain amount of people, they have a Gurmata so, uh, or Tatkalsa, um, uh, where everyone gets together, everyone, literally I can go. Yeah, yeah. And they all make a decision together yeah. oh, on, on, that, on, yeah, on that one thing. That's nice. Now, okay, I did want to touch on this because mm. this is something that um, I think I had known about, but when I learned it, I was kind of like intrigued by this. Mm. So you have a series of gurus. There was like a lineage of like 11, yeah, 11 gurus. Mm. And these were all people um, who held that position for a certain number of years since the late 1400s. But the modern one that came into, the modern guru that came into position in the early 1700s is a text, Mm. right? So talk about that, how it's not a person, but it's a text. Because I I think that's that's unique. Mm. Like, I don't know of other religions where the text is the current living guru. Mm. Um, like they, well, after the tenth guru, they gave Guru Gaddi to the Guru Granth Sahib, and a lot of people say it's a holy book. But as for Sikhs, it's it's not a book. It's um, it's a living guru. Mm-hmm. You you could say living even kind of belittles it because it's eternal and something that's living is gonna die. Oh yeah yeah. So it's the eternal guru, and um, we the Guru Granth Sahib is full of is is Shabad. So Shabad um. Shabbat's very hard to translate, you know. <laughs> These words are really hard. Shabbat... It's not Shabbat, like a holy <laughs> no, day, is it? No, no. Different religion, wrong Shabbat could, tra- could translate to word, but it also could it also translate to that unstruck melody. So when the world... You know how you have, how you have Om? Uh-huh, that, Om, yeah. So when the universe was created, it had that one sound. Uh-huh, yeah. So that's the unstruck melody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like the eternal essence the, the, yeah, the of eternal existence. Essence. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And because the Guru Granth Sahib is full of 
Gyan, which is knowledge. Knowledge is never going to die. So there's an actual, like, text. Like, you could mm -hmm. read it. Yeah. And there's, like, words. It's not just, like... Mm -hmm. the, the, yeah, the words. And um, they're compiled... The compile, the, it was compiled by only all ten gurus. Um, majority was from our first guru, Gurnanak. Mm. It has um, pieces from other other religions, you could say, Bhagat uh, Kabir, Islam, yeah. from uh, some Hindus. Yeah. And um, it's just like truth and wisdom. Yeah, it, which is eternal. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, like when you think of it that way, mm. no one would argue that truth is not eternal yeah. or wisdom is not eternal, Definitely. like you said. But if you think of like a like you said like a living thing. Living things die, but yeah. eternal things don't. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, there's no ending to eternal wisdom. Definitely. And that is, I feel like, universal. Even people who are, uh, you know, believers of other religions and other faiths, or even people who are atheists, like, mm. and don't believe in a god or divine being, like, still, like, mathematical equations are still eternal. Yeah, you know, like, that <laughs> truth, truth as it is, yeah. will never die. So, so I can see how that's, like, the current guru. Also, with the truth. It doesn't matter who says it, because there was those Muslims that, that said the truth. You know, yeah. if, okay, if I said you know killing's wrong, yeah. you said killing's wrong. It doesn't matter who said that. Yeah, it's, it's still wrong. It's still correct. <laughs> yeah, it's still the right thing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I just wanted to touch on that because that was always something that really interested me when I whenever I've looked at um, Siki, and then also um, the last thing while I'm here, have you here in front of me as um, yeah these five. K's, hmm. which literally like the letter K. <laughs> um, so I've always seen like, you know, Sikhs have a lot of Sikhs, especially men have turbans mm. and long beards and um, the hair is not like cut. cut. <laughs> yeah. But then I also always notice like silver bangles on mm. your wrists. Yeah. So you want to just like go through those because I would like to learn about them. Um, well, basically, it's a, it's a ceremony called the Amra Sanjar. Uh -huh. You could say it's, it's um, you could translate it to, to baptism, but it's, it's, it's different. It's much different to that. It's yeah. just the only way we could explain it to like people <laughs> who are new to the concept. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is so that I, just like a spiritual awakening ritual? You could say. Um, it's our, it was our tenth guru, and they ma made the Khalsa Panth. Khalsa was the, the, the means pure. Panth mm -hmm. is the the path, so the, the path of the pure. Pure path. Yeah. And these are also people who carry the sword. Mm -hmm. were ready oh, to yeah. defend so they gave the five k's which was karpan which is a sword um kara which is the the bangle the, the bracelet, iron, yeah. Yeah, iron bangle um gaze which is the uncut hair so it doesn't matter if it's on your head your, your face your beard your anyway, yeah. <laughs> uncut uh -huh. um the ganga which is a comb so you know to keep your hair nice thing yeah well since you're not cutting it <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you gotta so. keep it straight <laughs> yeah and uh the kashara which is the i guess it's like long shorts it's mm -hmm. like um yeah and uh, they all have their own uh, meanings as well. Yeah. And they they made the Khalsa Panth, which is also kind of like an army. So back in the time, you had to you know there was a lot of conflict, so they had to defend themselves as well. Yeah. So um, they were there ready to um, give their lives. So you you meant to give your life while you're alive as while you're alive as well. It's not just about going dying in battle. It's about dying while you're alive. So killing your destroying your your ego, destroying mm -hmm. kill, killing your um your your lust. Your yeah. anger, you know, jealousy, jealousy, any of those vices, yeah. You're fully killing, so you're so you're literally nothing. So you're, you're just an es you're literally just a being. Mm -hmm. So you know, being the dust of everybody's feet while you're alive, not not only just fighting. So it's kind of like a deconstructing your personal identity mm. in order to attain oneness with God. Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah. that's why we keep our hair. Um, so we're not we're not thinking how we look. Oh uh, yeah. It's it's, it's just accepting accepting the will of yeah. you know. 
the higher power. Who you are. Yeah, there was this thing uh, that was on the internet a few years ago mm. that's come around. I'm sure you've seen it. Maybe some of the listeners have seen it too, but it, it was on one of those websites that a lot of like university students use. I don't know if it was Tumblr or Reddit or I don't know. I'm not on those websites. <laughs> but it was one of those sites and someone had taken a picture of this um, girl at their university and it was a Sikh girl who had a you know her hair bundled up in the turban I guess mm. this turban is what yep. it's called for both genders mm. and she had a little bit of like chin hair yeah. like mm-hmm. I don't know did you see this it was like a little bit of hair that so. had grown yeah. on her chin like mm. you know mm. a lot of women or I'm gonna say all women not a lot all women have like at least peach fuzz on their chin yeah at least I do <laughs> and she had like a little bit longer hair like it was visible she mm. had black hair and so you could kind of see it and mm. someone had taken a picture of her and put it on the internet and like kind of was kind of making fun of her like mm. oh can you believe this woman who has a beard it really wasn't like a long extensive beard like you guys listening can't see but Hardeep here in the studio has does have like a big long beard um so it wasn't a big one but she you know she had chin hair and I guess kind of like some sideburny stuff maybe people have seen it and she saw it online like someone had made fun of her and was like haha like look at this crazy girl and she responded and had this beautifully eloquent response that was like oh yeah I'm a Sikh and we accept ourselves and our bodies just as they are and like we're not worried about how we look and the vanity of it but we're more concerned with how we live our lives and what kind of person we are and our behaviors are more important than our bodies and the guy like everyone freaked out about this photo not because of what he said at first and not because of what she said but because he came back after her response and apologized to her yeah. on the internet which yeah. is completely unheard of like i don't know i've i've maybe it's just me but nobody i've ever heard or seen online has been like oh i'm sorry for making fun of you i take that back but I guess the guy who had originally posted it posted it was so moved by mm-hmm. her response of like, yeah, it's it's less about how we look and our appearance and more about how we act and who we are as people. Mm-hmm. You know, the internal content of who we are is more more important and more valuable mm-hmm. than the physical uh, body. So I just thought that was really that always yeah. stuck with me. It was like an old story from a few years yeah. ago, but I was just like, man, <laughs> those Sikhs, they're awesome. No, I've got one friend. She's she's got some. Um, some facial hairs are and she's always said it at first it, it, it really used to, it didn't instead of destroying our self-confidence confidence it built it up it made it, it empowered ah, her. Wow. it made her feel like you know i don't need you know, i don't need to like please anybody else to be yeah. who i am people can like me for who i truly am i love that mm, it's, it's just like you know breaking that social norm because since you're young you always get taught this is what is beautiful yeah and it depends where you go if you're in england if you're in america if you're in india they all have different concepts of Mm -hmm. of beauty and in reality if you don't change your facial appearance at all the the people are only going to judge you on the beat of who you are your character so that was the essence of you know not not changing anything and it is hard Especially for I say oh, I, I don't know for for a guy I've never found it too hard because you know guy with a beard is it's not as especially now it's hipster yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's cool like really now. popular <laughs> yeah people are now coming like asking you know what oil do you use <laughs> <laughs> but I guess for like I use my face it grows <laughs> it automatically it's really easy <laughs> yeah I guess for like females it's it's, it's quite different because yeah. especially now in our culture it's, it's seen you know you have to paint your face you have to put loads of makeup on you have to look in a certain way you know even the, even our like even our humor, because I was having this discussion with my friend, and she's like, "How weird is this? In on comedy shows, they have 
like playbacks of of laughter. So they're telling you this is what you should find funny. This is what we should find funny. Yeah. yeah but and as you look over the years, every the humans changed so much, and you're getting pro programmed into this is what you find funny. This is what you, you this is what's beautiful, and this is what's not beautiful. This, this is, is what's attractive. This is what's yeah. ugly. This is what <laughs> should be appealing. Yeah, and you're right. It is so like, it we are so indoctrinated, mm, for definitely. lack of a better word, by society and media and all of that and not that all of those things are bad um or cultural or societal norms are bad but to stay true to what's important Mm. above all of those things is the content of your character the quality of the person that you are your ethics your morals your values how you treat other people how you treat yourself Mm. you know um yeah that's really i just think that's so amazing Okay, cool. Well, I think that's it for everything that I have. Um, there is a Sikh Society here on campus. Did you want to mention any yep. of the details about that? Uh, it's every Tuesday, um, I think, 5 to 7. And um, they have all the events posted on Facebook, so be sure to join them. Okay, so it's here on campus every Tuesday, 5 to 7. Do yep. you know where they meet? Um, they meet in various locations. Various places it's, here on so campus. So the best place is to go onto Facebook and then join them, and they always post it up on that. Yeah. And um, DMU, we have ours on uh, Wednesday, and it's normally Queen's Building, but definitely follow us on Facebook as well because the venue is always changing. Okay, cool. Yeah, I actually joined the Seek Society <laughs> on Facebook to contact you because yeah. I was <laughs> contacting another girl. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've been following, like, the posts and everything. And I'm like, oh, can I be on here? I'm not a Seek. Like, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> but you guys are so nice. Like, yeah, Seeks are really welcoming as a community as a whole. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Again, this was Hardeep Singh, who's a second-year DMU student. He's studying biomedical science. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was really good. Great. So that was an interview with Hardeep Singh and myself, Sarah Bird, uh, a conversation about Sikhism and Buddhism and uh, everything there. So we're going to have another break, another three song set coming up. And this first tune playing is by no doubt it is called The Climb. Every 
Before that, you heard Witchy Tai Tao by Harper's Bazaar. And we started off that three-song set with The Climb by No Doubt. So I want to spend the last few minutes of the show um, talking about five practical ways that you can boost your mood. So I want to start off with this uh, very short quote by Tony Robbins, who is an American uh, motivational speaker. And he said, emotion is created by motion. So basically what he's saying is our emotions and our motion in our bodies is linked. So our state of mind in our body is also linked. There's actually a field of psychology in this. It's called somatic psychology, which is just the psychology of the body, so to speak. Um, so if you think about it, you know, there's lots of ways that we already just kind of it's like common knowledge that our body is linked with our emotions. So if you think of like, you know, when you're embarrassed, maybe you see your crush or something and your face gets flushed or uh, when you're angry, you clench your fists and you clench your jaw. Maybe you grind your teeth or, you know, your palms get sweaty when you are nervous. Maybe you're giving a presentation or you're nervous about public speaking and, um, you know, your palms get sweaty. So those are kind of common examples. But even if you think about it, I, I want you to try something. So try doing this right now. Wherever you're sitting or standing, just slouch. Just kind of drop down. Maybe hunch your shoulders over. Start taking shallower breaths instead of long, deep ones. Close your eyes and frown. Um, take a big sigh. <sighs> you know, how do you feel after doing all of that? Do you feel maybe discouraged or sad? Maybe you're feeling down after that? Now straighten yourself back up, you know, pull your shoulders up, stand up straight um, take deeper breaths and automatically your body is going to feel better and your mood is going to feel better. So um, has anyone ever said to you on days like, wow, you look like you're having a bad day or the opposite. Wow, you're beaming today. I know I've said that to people. People have said things like that to me. You know, our bodies are directly linked with our feelings and our emotions, whether it whether it directs how we feel emotionally, you know, if you've been sitting in a chair for a long time and you end up slouching after being there for hours working on your project or whatever, and then, you know, you're tired, or if it's vice versa, your body is reflecting your emotional state or your state of mind. Either way, they're linked. So I'm going to go through five different ways that you can boost your mood based on this idea that our emotion is created by motion. So here's the first one. First off, play some upbeat music. We just had three songs that we listened to, and they were all uh, pretty uplifting, positive, fun music. So music can boost your mood. Um, 
especially if you have songs that are upbeat and lively, because we associate memories with particular songs. So if you have a song that, you know, always made you really happy, then each time you listen to it, you're going to again feel really happy. And it's the same with energetic music. You know, you always think of people who are running, or maybe you're a runner yourself, and you, you know, whenever you're at the gym or working out, you always put on lively, upbeat, energetic music to kind of get your body moving. So it helps boost your energy. So that's the first way right there. The second one is to get up and stretch. Open up your body, reach up to the ceiling, get all the way up on your tippy toes. If no one's around and no one's looking, you can even jump up and down for, you know, 30 seconds or so. Just shake it out, roll your neck around. Doing all of these things just gets your body moving, it gets your blood flowing. It gets you back in your body. It gets your attention back into your body and it makes you feel more alive. So it's going to automatically boost your mood. So the first step was playing some upbeat music. Step two was getting up and stretch. Step three is to breathe deeply. So close your eyes and breathe all the way down into your belly. Take deep, full breaths. So you can do this a few times. And what this is doing is bringing oxygen into your blood and it makes you more alert and awake. This can boost your mood by making you feel more alive, you're calmer after you've taken those deep breaths and not calmer as in like more tired or sleepy, but calmer just as in, you know, if you're having a bad day and you're feeling down, you're going to be more at peace and that's going to boost your mood, make you feel more uplifted. It can help you forget about whatever's bringing you down. So that was step three. Here's step four. It's get your body moving. Move really vigorously. So go for a run, go for a bicycle ride, go for a walk, or my favorite is to dance, especially if you have that uplifting music on. If you do it outdoors, it's even better. It'll get you connected with nature. By moving, you're stimulating your blood flow all over your body. It's going from your head to your toes. And it's also bringing in oxygen. So if you do this long enough, move vigorously long enough, um, your body, your brain will eventually start releasing endorphins, which we all know are the feel-good chemicals in our brain. So if you're moving vigorously, working out, exercising, or even just going for a walk in the park, one of my favorite things to do, um, especially here on campus, Victoria Park right behind campus is really beautiful. Uh, your brain will actually release endorphins and you will feel better. So step one was playing some upbeat music. Step two was getting up and stretching. Step three was breathing deeply. Step four was get your body moving. And step five is to focus on the positive. So like we talked about earlier in the show with the Pima Chodron article, you don't want to bury your feelings or try to avoid your negative feelings, but you also don't want to get overwhelmed by them. It's about being balanced. You want to be in touch with your authentic experience, but you can also balance them with your positive, you know, positivity, uplifting your mood. It's all about the middle way in Buddhism. So balance yourself out if you're having a bad day or if you're feeling down. Balance it out with uh, focusing on the positive. And one way you can do that is by giving thanks. So gratitude is known to be a good mood booster. 
Um, it will not only boost your mood and make you grateful for the things you have right now in the moment, but it will also, uh, it's also a great way to open your heart, open your heart up. So I know when I'm having a bad day or when, you know, I'm, I'm feeling down, the first thing that goes is I, I close off my heart. So this is a really good way. Giving gratitude is a great way to open that heart back up and, um, boost your mood. The second way to focus on being positive is to change your inner story, change, um, you know, what you say to yourself from these are the things I have to do to these are the things I get to do. It'll make all the difference in your attitude and will lift your mood. So that was step five. Again, I'll go through them really quickly. It's number one, play some upbeat music. Number two, get up and stretch. Number three, breathe deeply. Number four, get your body moving. And number five, focus on the positive. So if you're able to do these things, it will boost your mood no matter what kind of day you're having and set you up for uh, a feel-good day. All right, so we're going to end the show here. I'm going to play another few tunes, um, but that concludes the discussion part of our show for this week. You've been listening to Charming Dharma on Lush Radio at the University of Leicester. You can always come back to the website and listen to these shows uh, via podcast. It's just lushradio.net. Look for my page called Charming Dharma, and all of our previous shows are on there via MP3, so you can check them out and listen in there. So this first song up is called Magida by My Morning Jacket.
Amanhã e pegue o que é seu A maquiagem vai desmanchar Para o seu medo aparecer Zero a zero, agora eu vou Você deu mole, então eu marco gol Zero a zero, você venceu Você deu mole, então quem faz sou eu
That was Lord. The song was called No Better. That concluded our three-song set. Before that, you heard Rebel Rebel by Sir Jorge, which is a Portuguese artist. And that song is a cover of David Bowie's Rebel Rebel. And uh, Sir Jorge actually did the entire soundtrack all by himself to The Life Aquatic, which was a movie that came out uh, about 10 years ago or so. Um, and then we started off that three-song set with the song by uh, called Megita by My Morning Jacket, which is a great American band that I love. Um, so that concludes our show today. Thank you for listening to Charming Dharma. You can tune in next week, Wednesday from 2 to 4, only on Lush Radio.